All right, welcome everyone. Uh, this is the inaugural Equal Justice Podcast. The Equal Justice Podcast is a forum for all those who seek truth, value tradition, and fight to defend the foundations of a moral and just society. My name is Anthony Costello, and we are honored today uh, for our inaugural podcast to have Dr. Corey Miller with us uh, to kickstart this whole project. Um, Corey, it's great to have you on. Um, how are you doing today? Great to be here, Tony. I, I'm thrilled. It's a, it's a crazy time out there in our culture. And as is often said, ideas have consequences. And that's what we're seeing. Well, that's right. And that's, we're going to get to a lot of those ideas today. Um, Corey, let me go ahead and uh, give a short bio of you. You have a very unique uh, background. I suppose everybody has unique background, but yours seems especially suited to the kind of work that you do. Uh, Corey Miller is, uh, has a PhD in philosophy of religion and is the current president and CEO of Ratio Christi Campus Ministries. Uh, Corey grew up in uh, Utah, a uh, sixth generation Mormon, uh, but came to Christ in 1988. Uh, he served on pastoral staff at four churches and has taught nearly 100 college courses in philosophy, theology, rhetoric, and comparative religions at places like Purdue, Indiana University, Multnomah, and Ecola Bible College. Uh, he's published in various journals like the International Philosophical Quarterly, Philosophia Christi, and the Christian Research Journal. Uh, Dr. Miller holds master's degrees in philosophy, biblical studies, and philosophy of religion and ethics. And his PhD is from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Uh, Corey lives with his wife, Melinda, and their three children in Indiana. Corey, is there anything that I missed that you'd like to add to that already Im impressive uh, biography? <laughs> no, that's just fine. Thanks, Tony. All right. Well, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about uh, Ratio Christi first before we get to our, our content. We'd like to hear more about the ministry that you guys do. Sure. Thank you. Ratio Christi is uh, Latin for the reason of Christ. It is a Christocentric, not merely a theocentric uh, think tank organization that is about apologetics evangelism or evangelistic apologetics on predominantly uh, secular university campuses. Our mission is to equip students and faculty with historical, philosophical, and scientific reasons for following Jesus. And we're all about thoughtful Christianity and transform um, lives on campus today and change the culture tomorrow. And, and what's, the, uh, what's the extent of Ratio Christi now? I mean, how many different uh, chapters do we have and where are they? We're on about 125 campuses from Rutgers to UCLA, having uh, high school, college prep groups, having professor groups, uh, mostly student university groups. And we're also in a variety of countries like Pakistan, Study Center in London, uh, South Africa, just got... Uh, charitable status up in Canada, have an MA apologetics program in Southeast Asia uh, that we run and so forth. So it's been around for about a decade, but God is really moving through it. Wow, that, that's some incredible growth in, in that short a time. I, I remember when I heard about the, the chapter in Pakistan opening and saw yeah. some of the earlier, that was, I, I, was uh, I had a stint in Afghanistan uh, myself with the 82nd Airborne Division. And uh, hmm. just to know there's something like, Ratio Christi in an area like Pakistan um, really is, is inspiring, right? And it really is a good testimony to what God can do if we just put our sort of nose to the grindstone and, and, and try and follow his will carefully. 
Yes, and, and you and I, be, both being prior military, we can appreciate this. We look at Rosho Christi as a special ops ministry. Right. Excellent. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good analogy for sure. Sorry, infiltrating uh, behind enemy lines. Yeah. But with the gospel. <laughs> yeah. good uh, well, great, Corey. Um, so the way we uh, thought we would structure uh, today's interview uh, as you uh, with our uh, guest contributor here is um, there were three phases that we wanted to talk about of how you have seen and understood and you've been embedded in this world for a long time now in virtue of your all your PhD work and being a professor and a teacher at various institutions of, uh, you know, how um, things have developed in the academy uh, over the last several decades and why we're sort of seeing the cultural phenomena that we're seeing now uh, that can certainly appear very scary to many of us in the church. Uh, so phase one, uh, which we kind of called uh, sort of losing uh, the universities in the West or what you've called uh, the phenomena of missional drift. Okay, and um, there's an excellent article you wrote for Christian Research Institute called How We Lost the Universities and How to Reclaim the Voice of Christ. We'll, we'll post a link to that uh, in the uh, YouTube channel. Um, but let's start with this idea of missional drift. Um, as I read through the article, I was sort of reminded of Francis Schaeffer's model of how sort of ideas sort of grab hold in the academy and then filter down uh, to the popular culture. Is, is that something like what, what you're getting at with missional drift, where sort of universities start to lose their anchoring to uh, their, their cr traditional Christian foundations, and then that filters out into the culture? Sure. And mission drift is a broader concept that's even talked about in the business world. It's talked about in, you know, parachurches across the board from Christian Children's Fund to Compassion International, Chick-fil-A, you know, whatever. Some are more faithful, uh, some drift. And with respect to the universities, yes, this is par for the course. It's, it's almost uh, not a matter of, you know, if, but when the university is going to drift if you don't guard that mission like a hawk. And that's what happened with the American university. The way it started out is not even remotely close to where it is today. So you said uh, not if, but when. Is this something that is just an inevitability then? Or how do, you, how do, we, how do we see this? Does it have to happen or... Uh, it's, it's almost like a law of physics, entropy, going from order to disorder or usable energy to unusable energy. And, you know, things began well in the United States long before it was the United States in 1776, about 150 years before that is when the first universities began. And the universities had an ethos, uh, or sorry, it, it, they had an ethos, but they had a telos. Greek word for end, purpose, or goal. They had a mission. And uh, their mission, uh, I, I like how Jonathan Haidt, who's an atheist, uh, writing on part of this topic as well, he, he puts up uh, two kinds of universities today. He puts up truth universities and social justice universities. But he begins with that. And he says that, look, there's been two philosophers from the modern era who said well what we're getting at here. John Stuart Mill said, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. He, his reasons may be good and no one may have been able to refute them, but if he is 
equally unable to refute the reasons of the opposite side, if he does not so much as know what they are, he has no ground for preferring either opinion. So from Mill's perspective and from others, the telos of the universities uh, would be truth, the pursuit of truth. Later, a philosopher came along, Karl Marx, the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. And we'll talk about that, I think, a little bit later. Right. Universities right. began with the, the very first one was Harvard in 1636, founded by the Puritans. Um, and the motto was Veritas, truth. Uh, within a couple decades, they modified it. And that modification stuck for almost 300 years until 1936, truth for Christ and the church. And so they were about debate. They were about the pursuit of truth. Um, and I think our university systems flourished, and you can look at, you know, almost every one of them, at least 104 out of the first 119, were actually Christ-centered uh, in this country. Up until 1840, the college president of every university was also a member of the clergy, and up till 1890, uh, church and chapel attendance were still required at every university in the country. Right. Wow. It's a, um, it's a very different world than we live in than that right now. Yeah. So I know we're going to get into sort of the history of the, I don't know if we want to call it the evolution or the devolution of uh, higher education uh, in the U.S. But before we, before we do that, I want, to, I want to just touch on one point that I think came up in your article. You mentioned Vishal Mangalwadi, who I've met personally and who also has spoken a lot on Christian education. Yes. Um, so... Now, because we're talking about here two different kinds of universities, one of which has as its main uh, telos the discovery and articulation of truth, mm -hmm. um, that uh, also would be something that you know the ancient philosophers uh, would have been interested in. So it's it's not reserved solely for um, Christian higher education, but we we could go all the way back to, of course. Uh, the Socratic philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, of course, sort yes. of as the the final voice of the of the great the three great uh, Greek philosophers who we often draw from, and that the church has always drawn from in its history. Um, so, but how does how does sort of the Greek tradition uh, relate to Christian education as it developed in our own country, and but how does it differ as well in your view? The Greek tradition, so I've got a recent book out on this, on uh, In Search of the Good Life Through the Eyes of Aristotle, Maimonides, and Aquinas. Interestingly, the Catholic, the Jew, and the pagan philosopher all saw that the ultimate uh, end in life, the ultimate telos, was the knowledge of God. Knowledge was central. Knowledge was thought to be discoverable. It was objective. There was a thing called truth, and you can know it. Um, and Christianity came along, as did Islam, as did Judaism, and adopted and adapted this teleological worldview uh, to their own system of thinking. And in the Christian uh, position, um, we begin with Jesus 2,000 years ago. He said, here then is eternal life, to know God. So central to the Christian experience, to the Christian life, is knowledge. 
It's not a faith tradition, so to speak. It's a knowledge tradition. And that accounts for why running through the uh, you know, Middle Ages, where the first universities from Paris to Bologna to um, you, you name it, the very first universities that began, were all started by Christians with the idea that uh, faith seeking understanding, fides corens intellectum, and that's what then came over into America. It was those Christian thinkers. We have to credit those people for founding uh, what we look at today as the universities. Right. So there was, a, there was certainly a synthesis. Uh, and people will often talk, talk about the medieval synthesis of yeah. you know, uh, Christian, uh, the Christian, uh, the content of Christianity, which was given to us in special revelation. But then where um, the church sort of, to use the phrase, plundered from Egypt, plundered from the best of uh, those thinkers who had general revelation and common grace, basically, right? Whether it be sort yeah. of Augustine uh, uh, taking from the, Neo, the Neoplatonists or obviously Aquinas in the Middle Ages uh, synthesizing Aristotelian uh, thinking and categories with special revelation from, from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, you know, where Jerusalem and Athens, what hath Jerusalem to do with Athens? Faith and reason, or religion and reason. Uh, in reality, the Christian viewpoint has always been that religion is reasonable, the Christian religion is, and it's about knowledge. It's not just about blind faith. And again, this is why you can explain not just as a matter of historical accident, but it's part of the DNA of the Christian worldview that helps to explain how the universities arose in Christian medieval Europe and then beyond in America. And as Magawati says, goes on into you know, Korea and India and so forth. When the Christians landed in America, the mottos of all the schools uh, was, was quite amazing. You know, uh, Veritas, for Christ in the church at Harvard, and then uh, Yale, after Harvard began to drift, Yale decided that they would start afresh and one-up them and call it um, uh, looks at veritas, or light and truth, in reference to Psalm 27. And then Columbia, you know, or Princeton comes along and, and does the same thing. Um, and as the two uh, books, the Old and New Testament, on, on their model, under God she flourishes, and then Columbia University, the first one in New York, but probably the fourth in, in the country. Uh, I, I saw this one myself when I was there. I've been at all of these campuses. Harvard, I have not. I'll be there in two weeks, though. Uh, but when I was at Columbia, I'd never had the history of that one. But I just walked around the campus, and I found, etched in the walls, in thy light we shall see light, quoting Psalm 36. Mm -hmm. All of these universities were Christ-centered. They, they began as missionary and uh, minister training centers. Uh, faith was not blind. Uh, the faith, the Christian faith, was a knowledge tradition. Um, boy, it's 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 almost hard to think of of Columbia in that way these days, right? right. And think of all the people that have come out of Columbia and the ideas that have come out yeah. of there recently. Um, I think it was. Uh, I think Prager went there and did a master's degree in. Uh, Eastern studies or Russian studies. He talks about yeah. it quite a bit. Um, so, and the reason, the reason though, going back to the Greeks and that synthesis, 
And I think we'll come to this when we look at phase two, uh, which is where we're going to delve into cultural Marxism. It seems that there's a rejection of, of two great traditions uh, currently. One is, of course, uh, the Judeo-Christian worldview, uh, which is grounded in the special revelation of the Bible. But the other is also of sort of the Western canon of philosophy and literature, uh, going back to the Greeks, uh, that this is also sort of rejected in our times, or maybe has been for a while. Uh, do you think that's a, a correct sort of assessment of the situation? Yes. Uh, at the rise of modernity, if you think about this from a philosophical viewpoint, uh, philosophy has its own subject matter, three major branches, reality, knowledge, and ethics, or metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics, where we begin from the foundation asking what is real, and then move on to how do I know what is real, and then finally how should I then live based on what I know about reality. We began with first philosophy, with metaphysics. Once you move into the modernist period or the enlightenment period, you begin with Descartes, who was a Christian believer, but he got us off on the wrong foot. Um, I think therefore I am, he was that guy, the father of modern geometry, but he began with epistemology uh, and he began with skepticism so that in almost all introduction to philosophy textbooks today, you have an introductory chapter on skepticism. And so Descartes began with skepticism that launched the enlightenment and he wanted to get us to the point of absolute certainty, divorced from say revelation. He wanted to start uh, not based on authority or uh, with ultimate reality, but to start with reason, human reason in particular. And there became a battle in the modernist period between the uh, empiricists and the rationalists. And at the end of the enlightenment, it seems that, you know, Immanuel Kant tried to tie the bow and tried to merge the two and failed. And he gave us, you can't know ultimate reality. And so during the Enlightenment period, that is where at least the empirical uh, wing of the fight, I think, had more traction. And we entered into not just, you know, uh, being uh, embracing empirical ways of knowing, but it became empiricism and later scientism, mm -hmm. the absolutization of science and the scientific revolution happened. And again, almost all of the major founders of the sub-disciplines of sciences by name were Christians too, mm -hmm. but it began to drift even from those moorings and you leave the modernist period to get to the postmodern period and those people now were beginning not only to, you know, agree with the modernists against the, maybe the rejection of metaphysics, or at least not starting there, but they even said touche to epistemology or theory of knowledge. Uh, whereas the modernists said we can know truth, but it was really only empirical truth, scientific truth. Natural facts, right? Yes. Uh, the postmodernist comes along and says, uh, we agree with you against metaphysical truth, but touche, same thing with science truth, all knowledge is but a social construction of reality. And so you get relativism. Right. And it almost follows those three branches at the same time that those periods are changing as well. What is real? How do I know what is real? How should I then live based on what I know about reality? And the university has been divided up into two camps, into the hard sciences and into the humanities or uh, and social sciences, who wants to try to be a hard science. And of course, mm -hmm. after the Enlightenment, everybody wants to claim that their view is a science. Mm 
Well, now in the recent times, that whole narrative is being thrown up in the air as something that's Western colonialist logical right. fashion. Science itself becomes is, yeah. is put under the microscope, so to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, let me, let me just for the sake of our audience, uh, and then I'm trying to moderate this, let's, let me back up a little bit because we just covered a lot of ground there. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure this is clear for folks. So we've mentioned a few names, folks like Descartes and Kant, and we've mentioned a few areas of philosophy like metaphysics and epistemology. Um, give us some quick uh, timelines. What, when we talk about Descartes moving into the Enlightenment, uh, what, uh, literally what time, uh, in history are we talking about? And then also give us a, just some quick, uh, quick and dirty definitions of metaphysics, what is entailed in metaphysical speculation, and then also the shift to epistemology. So the enlightenment period begins with Descartes, who we say got Descartes before the horse. Mm. And it like ends with 17th Descartes, century, uh, 1650. Right. Uh-huh. To about 1800 was the Enlightenment time, ending, culminating with Kant, with whom you Kant know ultimate reality. Right. And Kant was the father then of modern agnosticism. And through that, uh, all sorts of trajectories happened. And of course, you have Hume, Hume sandwiched in between the two, right? Yeah, Kant was a rationalist. He read Hume and he said that, you know, the shackles of his eyes had fall, fallen off um, and he tried to merge them. So with the rationalist, you had people like Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz, uh, the fathers of modern geometry, calculus, and, and so forth. And then with the empiricist, you had people like uh, Locke, Berkeley, and Hume. Which mainly uh, the, the British uh, sort of strain of rationalism then. Uh, empiricism. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you had the two camps that kind of went back to their Greek predecessors. The empiricist followed a little bit along the lines of Aristotle, and the rationalist followed along the lines of Plato. Right. So when we talk about metaphysics, because, you know, we have, uh, obviously, um, you know, if, how, how do we do, I mean, one of the things that has developed out of this is, you know, modern theology, you know, mm -hmm. you ask the question, how do, how do you do theology without metaphysics? Right. Um, yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit, just give us a quick definition of what metaphysics is and what happens after Kant with the pursuit of, met of metaphysical thinking and metaphysical reasoning or speculation. Yeah, right. Aristotle had a book called The Physics, and then we move on to what is called metaphysics, and that is beyond the physics. So it's the nonsense perceptible realm, but it is inclusive even of the sense perceptible realm. It denotes all of reality. So the question, what is real? Are atoms real? Is God real? Are strings real? Are souls real? Is free will real? Um, epistemology is the Greek word episteme, which means knowledge. Um, and the Latin uh, derivation of that then is scientia, which we have our term science. But they never meant, even in the medievals, chemistry and physics mm -hmm. only. They meant all fields of knowledge. Um, and so you had reality, what is real, and then epistemology, the study of knowledge or theories of knowledge, evidence, rationality, and so forth. Um, and then finally, you have ethics, uh, the good, right, and so forth, the good life. Uh, how do I live? You first have to ask, well, what do I know? Before that, you have to ask, what is real? 
How do I, uh, what is real? How do I know what is real? How should I then live based on what I know about reality? That in a nutshell is the love of wisdom philosophy. And behind every PhD is a doctorate of philosophy. Everybody at that level is a philosopher, even if they've never had a class in it, they're all practicing it. And that's what's happening in the universities. Right. So, so after Kant, there's this sense at least that we can't sort of do metaphysics. Would that be fair to say? Or if metaphysics sort of gets, I don't know, subjugated to epistemology? Yeah, I mean, epistemology was all the rage. It was the focal point for the Enlightenment. The goal of the Enlightenment was certainty uh, through uh, human means, right? Human reason. We begin with man. Um, Kant then became the guy who even questioned epistemology, and, and that's where the first time we hear critical comes in, like... Mm-hmm. Today, we might use the term critical theory, mm-hmm. uh, the critique of pure reason, then the critique of pl- practical reason and so forth. But Kant uh, certainly questioned, you know, e- even when he gave ethics, he wanted ethics within the bounds of reason, right? right. Not, not religion. And Kant impacted, after he read Hume, of course, uh, he had an impact on skepticism in that realm because Hume was the father of skepticism. Kant became the father of agnosticism, uh, and everybody from Kant, you felt like either natural theology, uh, theology derived from, you know, general revelation, looking around uh, at what's out there in the world from, you know, the cosmos to the maker of the cosmos, from the moral law to the moral law maker and so forth. Natural theology was said to be dead after Kant and Hume killed it. Uh, but it's not just miracles that someone like Hume or even Kant went after. Uh, it impacts science as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you buy into Hume's arguments, for example, a lot of skeptics love to cite Hume, and then they claim to root their worldviews into science. You know, that, that's going to go as well because of the so, problem of induction and other things. So reason, reason sort of becomes an acid that sort of eats away at, it, at itself almost in that sense, right? I mean... Uh, yeah, once, once if you look at, if you look at the, the triangle and have the foundation metaphysics or reality and then epistemology theory of knowledge up on top of that and then on top of that, ethics, once you take out the foundation of an edifice, mm-hmm. what it is above it is going to fall down and fall down hard. And there were already cracks at the beginning of the Enlightenment period focused on epistemology. And there was a big battle between the empiricists and the rationalists on this. It was only a matter of time, Tony, before uh, we ended up in skepticism and then agnosticism because of that. And then once you get to ethics, how should I then live? Well, you get Nietzsche, a postmodern right. philosopher, however you want, if you have the biggest tanks or can flex the biggest muscle. Right. So, okay, well, th- this, is, uh, this is certainly the, the, the sort of survey, brief survey of intellectual history that uh, we wanted to hear about and try, uh, if you can, for us, bring this all up to the modern university in America. How, how then does this post-enlightenment sort of problem of knowledge and then, you know, metaphysics, then knowledge, then ethics and the whole edifice, um, where, but then it seems like within uh, a sort of a, let's say an agnostic or maybe even an atheistic materialistic worldview, we seem to have these two branches of that. One is like sort of the, what I would might call the classical atheist or, 
you know, who still thinks that, and you've kind of mentioned this, that science can uh, help us to discover truth, even though that there's only the, the truth only consists of something like natural facts. But there's still we still have some tool uh, grounded in in reason uh, to do like actual science and discover facts. And you know maybe we'd put somebody like a I don't know if we put like a Bertrand Russell of yesteryear or like a Dawkins of today in that group. But then we have what you said happened in the humanities departments, um, you know, where we go, we take this turn where now science itself is even put under the microscope. And it's not so much about discovering truths about external facts, but the scientist, him or herself is under scrutiny uh, right. and their interpretation uh, of things becomes primary. And, and this is, I think, going to lead us into our discussion on, on, sort of Marxism and, cult and the cultural Marxism. So right. am I right in sort of suggesting that there's two kind of branches that come out of the enlightenment here, a sort of scientific materialistic one, and then more of an existential sort of postmodern one? Right. And that postmodern is a deviation from modernity, or you might call it hyper-modernity, mm -hmm. uh, where it just extends the deterioration of uh, good thinking that has been around for a couple thousand years. So we had the correspondence theory of truth. Uh, truth is that which corresponds to reality or that which squares with the way things are to today where truth is that which my peers will let me get away with. Mm -hmm. uh, Richard Rorty. Rorty's so line, yeah. yeah. But if you, if you look at this uh, again, historically of what was happening at the time uh, to put things into perspective. The Enlightenment period from Descartes to Kant was 1650 to 1800. The universities, Harvard, 1636 Puritans, mm -hmm. all the way up through, you know, Columbia and so forth, about 1750. And they, those universities stayed faithful all the way up until about 1850. So almost 200 years. And again, um, every president was a member of the clergy up to 1840. But in around 1870, many of the, uh, all of our universities and colleges, none of them had a graduate school. Johns Hopkins, I think, was the first. So people would go off to the continent, to Germany, to England, and they would uh, go to grad school. They would come back and they would get into key posts in the uh, academic arena in America. And they would bring back with them every PhD has a doctorate of philosophy behind it, certain philosophical ways of thinking uh, of the enlightenment, the fact-value dichotomy, the dichotomy between faith and reason. At the time, you know, 1859 was uh, Darwin's origin of the species, so biological evolutionary theory and uh, biblical higher criticism was beginning then uh, that came right out of the enlightenment. Um, the question about miracles. And so Thomas Jefferson exacto blades out all the miracle components um, in his New Testament. And so you get the rise of deism. Mm -hmm. So that stuff is coming back over from the continent, from, from Europe, over into America. And those people with higher graduate degrees ended up being more salient in their CV, you might say, in their resume, and took key posts, and you saw the battles ensuing at Princeton and Yale and Columbia and Harvard and many of these original universities. You watched it happening between 1880 and 1930. So this is problems. really the point of missional drift that were, you know yeah. starts happening at this time, late 19th century, 
in lieu of the higher biblical criticism being done in Germany, uh, the advent of Darwinian evolution as a theory of origins, and so on. It kind of creates a perfect storm at, the, uh, at these Christian institutions, especially the ones on the East Coast. Yes, and, and you know, there were, some, there were some practical needs trying to be serviced as well. When people were, the population was growing and many people were moving into an area, if you have Princeton, which is a sectarian school geared toward Presbyterians, right? Mm -hmm. Each of them were sectarian to begin with, um, rather than secular. And by secular, we don't mean humanist or atheist. We simply mean not sectarian, not a sect. Um, they were trying to service their own people, but the populations were growing. They needed to be servicing more people. Today, we call it the online competition. Everybody's teaching online, so all the other universities are doing it. But people needed jobs. And uh, so the university started adding you know, technology and other things and began to shift the um, focus of the university, which began from the medieval times that theology is the queen of the scientia, the knowledge disciplines, and philosophy, it's handmaiden, right? So you can look at it like a hub with a bunch of spokes where theology is the hub and the spokes are physics and mathematics and language and history and so forth. So every PhD is a doctorate in philosophy. In the Enlightenment, theology got ripped out and it became atheology. Uh, naturalism became the core hub. That wasn't so yet in America, but it began to take on that light. And that's why all the departments started changing their names too, to not just politics, which is always part of ethics, always, mm -hmm. uh, from, right. from, you know, permanentes on up until Kant. Now it's called political science or economic science or psychological sciences, which psychology is the study of the soul. Um, but they began to change because they were trying to satisfy the, the lights of the enlightenment, which science came to win the day, or skepticism did, and you ended up in existentialism. Uh, but the universities at this time then, uh, you know, they lasted faithfully for about 200 years and, and really almost up to 250 but that transformation was happening, that mission drift from um, you know, 1880 to 1930. By the time 1930 rolls around, the dust was settling. The mm -hmm. gig was up, the game was over. Um, it went from what George Marston calls in his book, from Protestant establishment, since virtually every college and university were Protestant at this time, from Protestant establishment to established non-belief. It, it wasn't atheism, it wasn't Richard Dawkins, it wasn't secular humanism that caused mission drift. It was false philosophy embedded in liberal Protestant theology. Mm -hmm. And those people who got in key positions began to create drift in those once uh, faithful uh, Christian think tanks. And by 1930, it was over and you began a series uh, and during that time you also saw the shift inside the organizations uh pushing the divinity schools off into their own little corners into theological seminaries into divinity schools it was no longer the heart of the university it was now just a small part of it and eventually those got taken over as well and you started the new movements of um you know from princeton theological seminary to um, you know, Westminster, and you started uh, Biola University, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, Moody Bible, and all of those, right. you know, in the, in the 20th century, 
So you had almost a, a retreat or a, maybe a tactical retreat starting over after phase one. Starting over, right. So there's so kind of three phenomena here. One is the secularization mm -hmm. of the traditional Protestant universities. Then everything sort of splintering into what's what we might call the modern research sort of university. Everything gets splintered off into separate departments that are then called, you know, this science, that science. Because there's no really unifying, as you said early on in the interview, no unifying telos anymore, right? Everybody's just going to do their own little, very specified work, but there's no capstone sort of holding it together anymore. Uh, would that be a fair to... Uh, the, the telos could still be truth, but it was scientific truth. Truth, and not uh, uh, theological. That was only yeah. through the five senses, uh, because right. the cousin or the foundation of scientism is naturalism mm -hmm. so that right. was the new uh queen of the scientia was naturalism right and then um in light of that you get sort of these uh yeah let sort of these um i don't know what we'd call it uh uh newer christian institutions who are sort of saying we have to sort of start over uh we've sort of lost uh the big uh, three and the other sort of Ivy school. So let's, let's redo, let's start over and try and, uh, uh, reinvigorate a more classical understanding of, uh, with theology at the top. And that's where you get the seminaries or schools like, uh, the Bible Institute, Biola, Moody, and so on and so forth. Is that kind of what yeah, you might look at that in the same way of the Protestant Reformation, always trying to reform within. And then finally, when they felt like they couldn't, they had to break and became the protesters or Protestants. Well, this is the reformation of the American Academy, you might say. You, it just, you couldn't reform within anymore. They, they had all the positions of power and influence and the um, more traditional voices were pushed out. And so, yes, they had to begin again uh, and start the whole process us over well and i and i think maybe we'll come back to uh sort towards the end of our interview where we think some of these institutions that cropped up in the early part of the 20th century where we think they're going now because now they've been around for 100 or so years and yeah. um and we've been both we've both been sort of integral in um you know some of the things going on at uh you already mentioned at biola so let's, let's put that on the shelf for now. We'll try and come back to that towards the end because I think that will be relevant. But we want to start moving into phase two here, which is our discussion of uh, Marx, Karl Marx, and sort of the, uh, a little bit of what classical Marxism is, and then the neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism. These are big uh, popular terms right now. They're being thrown around all over the internet and all over the media. Um, and maybe you can help us guide, guide us through a little bit then. So what happens then in the post-enlightenment, sort of starting with Marx and his views, how, how are those maybe different uh, than some of the other enlightenment views? And then how did sort of Marxism, you think, come over to the West and sort of infiltrate, if that's the right way to put it, infiltrate uh, many of these new departments that we kind of just mentioned at the big universities. Yeah, and so to put Marx in perspective, his period was 1818 to 1883. So right after the end of the Enlightenment, he, he would be marked as a postmodern thinker. 
Marx never had any arguments for God's non-existence. He just assumed that natural theology had been destroyed and biblical revelation was destroyed and that religion was simply the opium of the masses or the drug for those who in a tough world uh, couldn't purchase opium to get through life. They had to purchase religion instead. Um, and so religion is the opium of the masses, the poor, poor sigh of the oppressed. Uh, religion was the sigh of the oppressed creature, and they became the oppressors with, with religion, as it turned out as well. But Marxism is often thought of uh, in terms of an economic theory of communism. Uh, but really, uh, critical um, economic criticism was his third more important issue. Right. His second more important was political criticism, and prior to that was religious criticism. So even going back to Marx, then it wasn't about capitalism versus communism. Um, he believed that in order for his prediction to come to fruition, the utopia of equality, um, so that men were and women were no longer oppressed creatures, um, they would have to get rid of religion. They would have to shed its snake skin. And they would do so willingly if you gave everybody, say, an iPhone 10 or whatever the latest right. gadget. The, the stuff they needed, in other words. Yeah, $30,000 or $50,000 a year salary. Mm -hmm. If you redistributed the wealth across the board, uh, people are only religious because of socioeconomic oppression, right? Yeah, or lack, right. Right. Freud's, Freud's idea, his criticism of religion was that it was internal, that there was some um, um, you know, we, we're not playing with a full deck there. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's psychosis, um, but it was internal. Uh, maybe it was but hard. Freud, I think Freud saw it as necessary though, right? I mean, didn't he, maybe I'd be wrong on this, did, that he thought if you got rid of religion that we, we, we wouldn't be able to survive existentially. I may be wrong there, but uh, whereas Marx thought, no, we, we could certainly jettison or needed to get rid of it at some point. Well, yeah, I mean, I think he had some justifications of it. Uh, interesting book on, on Freud and Lewis that someone might consult um, without getting off too far off the right. track. Uh, Marx saw the problem was external. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't an argument for, against religious belief or, or against the facts or arguments of religion. It just assumed they were all bad to begin with. It was now giving reasons for why people would have religious belief. They would be shooting air balls, as it were. Um, it's delusional. But why are they delusional? Um, because they're oppressed. They're socioeconomically oppressed. But if you redistribute the wealth and, and uh, get the capitalists who are exploiting the workers off their backs, and then everybody would flourish. It would be utopia. People wouldn't want to compete anymore because humans aren't basically evil. They're maybe basically good or at least neutral, but they're all, they'll all just get along. Right. That's kind of where Marx was. And it was, it was almost like scientifically predicted, he thought, that if the conditions were right, then people would simply revolt and capitalism had its seeds of its own destruction. And so, after, you know, World War I came around and the Marxists thought, here it comes, here it comes. People are going to pull up their boots. They're going to, the workers of the world are going to unite uh, and throw off the shackles of the bourgeoisie, the ruling class. But they didn't. They pulled up their boots and they went to war with each other. And so after World War I, the Marxists got together and said, okay, we have to retool this. We have to rethink this. What's going on here? And they said there were some problems in Marx's thought. And 
one of them was looking at where to begin the strategy, how to make this happen. It's not going to happen naturally. And we've got to think about the broader culture, not just the economic part of this, not just the class division. And so the cultural Marxists started with a, a term called critical theory, mm-hmm. comes from Kant, critical, um, critique of pure reason, the critique of practical reason and so forth, critiquing the uh, prevailing narratives. And for these critical theorists, they were trying to critique theory, um, the, the, the narratives of Western civilization and critique, 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 tear them down. Uh, the family, the um, economics, the religion, and so forth. And so this Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, as it was called, uh, in Germany, in Frankfurt, Germany, arose. They're the popular ones, but there are many critical theories, but they're one of the popular ones. They rose up and they started thinking uh, about how to go about this neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism. At the same time, there was an Italian uh, neo-Marxist named Alberto Gramsci uh, in Italy, and, and he talked about how, you know, we can't go after the coercive elements of society like government and military and law enforcement. We've got to go after education and religion, the non-coercive elements of society, and the coercive elements will follow suit. So how do you Frankfurt- have sort of a, a non-violent revolution, right? Sure. I mean, in Marx's writings, he talked about the guillotine. He thought that religion uh, would shed itself. It's like a snakeskin. He was open to uh, nominal religion. But at the end of the day, uh, you couldn't have serious religion because Marxism is a state-building worldview. That's why it can never get along with Islam and Sharia law. Mm-hmm. Um, look at Chechnya, for example. As we saw in Afghanistan. As well. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Um, so, the, the, you know, the Marxists and the Muslims couldn't get along unless there's someone else who's uh, ruling a city. Then they come together for a temporary alliance, uh, like we're seeing in America. Which we've seen play out as well. In, in the yes, world. yes. But, but these, these neo-Marxists then, they thought, okay, what are we going to do? As they were planning, as they were scheming, Tony, it was a bad place to be if you were in Germany in 1933. <laughs> right. As a, as a. And global- most of these, most of these uh, thinkers were ethnically Jewish, uh, you know, <laughs> as well. They had to get out yeah. of, get out of Dodge pretty quickly. Yes. You had that most of them were Jewish, like Freud and like Marx. And Marx, right? Uh-huh. I think Marcuse and Horkheimer, I'm not sure yeah. about Horkheimer, but I think Adorno was ethnically Jewish as well. They had to get out of there. They had to get out of there. free. And you were a globalist socialist. The Nazis were also socialists. It's the National Socialist Party. Right. The Nazis were Antifa, or sorry, the globalists were Antifa. They were Mm anti-fascists. They were still socialists, as we can see operating today, but we'll get there. And Stalin and Hitler never got along well. And, you know, they, they had an alliance, but they, they did not like each other. And so what happened in 1933 when the Nazis rose to power is they had to get out of Dodge. They had to leave there. And where did they go? They went over the ocean and embedded themselves in Columbia University. Columbia and Brandeis. And, mm-hmm. yeah. and began to spread through the Ivy Leagues, particularly from the social sciences, because this is the, you know, the, uh, the school of social science sociology, others, it, 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 it branched into women's studies and queer theory and, you know, all other kinds of studies 
but in the humanities generally. But these people were now talking about um, not just dividing people among economic class, but along the lines of every possible way of race, class, sex, gender, nationality, and so forth, and trying to criticize, criticize, criticize the heck out of the prevailing narrative of Western civilization. Um, and they began to write all their famous pieces that were you know, at their apex, most salient, right at the time of the 60s, sexual and student mm -hmm. revolution. And uh, many of those people went on from there to go into academia and entered into the universities, furthering those ideologies, which still seemed to be floating under the current. They, they weren't taken seriously, really, until you get to the 90s. And in the 90s, two things happened, Tony. Um, you still had naturalism, which was ruling the universities, but mm -hmm. naturalism created a, a lab uh, for something to grow on its own in the humanities that they now have no control over. And that was this critical theory, uh, Marxism, neo-Marxism. Um, and what happened was that these people that, the, the, the idea is that if you look at, again, philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics, or what is real, how do I know real, what is real, how should I then live? It's essentially a view of reality where humans are at odds with one another in group identities. You're either part of the oppressor or the oppressed, the victim, the victimizer, the haves or the have-nots in race, class, sex, gender, and so forth. And you are at odds with one another in a constant interlocking fight. And then the goal, ultimately, the ultimate telos uh, is because of all those oppressions, those inequalities, inequality entails somehow injustice. So if there's ever any inequality in race, class, sex, gender, it must be unjust. And so the goal is socially group identity politics or identity power to liberate from socioeconomic, race, class, sex, gender, ability, national, uh, everything, liberate the oppressed. It is social justice. And the epistemology, the knowledge, is best known by those who are in an oppressed class or an oppressed mm -hmm. state. They have a secret or esoteric, Gnostic kind of knowledge mm -hmm. that we need to listen to. In virtue of their being oppressed, they have special knowledge. Yes. And the end goal of that is sort of a, a total flattening out then of all conditions, uh, material conditions, where everybody's essentially um, not just equal, but the same almost? E equality across the board. Across and so the board. We, want, we want equity. We have to force the equality now and take from, it's Robin Hood, mm -hmm. rob from the rich, give to the poor, because as Obama said, you didn't earn that, right? right. Marx's idea in economics is the same for all these other categories categories right that it's he, he viewed the economic growth as a, a pie a zero-sum game where if someone has 51 percent of the pie or five slices versus say three slices mm -hmm. that is unequal that has to it be unjust mm -hmm. right. because in order to get 51 percent, you had to take it 
from the other person. It's not the idea of capitalism where it's the tide that lifts all boats, where the whole mm -hmm. pie can win. No, it's the idea that if anyone has inequality in a category, that is unjust. And so this neo-Marxism is about fighting back against the bourgeois, the ruling class, the oppressors in religion, Christianity, right. heteronormativity, marriage. Um, uh, Anything that has been sort of the dominant view at all. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. cisgender, what you were born with, as opposed to, say, transgender, mm -hmm. um, sexual revolution, sexual rights, uh, polyamory, uh, again, race, class, sex, gender, everything across the board. It's, it's, it's very revolutionary. Um, uh, if you can't take over by violent revolution, you do it through infiltration. And that was what the neo-Marxist books were all about. And right. that's what's happening. And so real quick, the second part of what was going on in the early 90s, while naturalism still ruled the universities and they had this thing cooking up in the humanities over here that eventually morphed on its own, um, the ratio of left to right liberal to conservative uh, professors yeah. at the time was still about 2.3 to 1. And that's substantial once you start, you know, adding up to 100 professors and, you know, where you end up getting, you know, 50 to 25 or something like that. But still, 2.3 to 1, you've still got viewpoint diversity. You still right. have heterodoxy. You still have room for debate. And you can debate things and still pursue truth. Only scientific truth, mind you, now. Mm -hmm. um, but you can still debate things. And that's where we were. Um, but then all of a sudden there became this rise, this, this radical rise of the number of inequality, you might say, if there's anywhere where it's privileged, uh, it's in the university, where the number of left to right professors was escalating in a way that we have never seen in the history of the country, mm -hmm. such that... Um, now you have um, the ratio of professors that are uh, retiring at 12 to 1. Professors that are under the age of 40 that give us the next 30 years, it's 23 to 1. In New England, it's 27 to 1. In some departments, like religious studies, it's 70 to 1. That's incredible. And with, with the rise of that yeah, political um, homogenous orthodoxy you might say right um was also simultaneously the rise of neo-marxism critical theory social justice identity politics inside the academy and it was almost like tom cruise's movie the war of the worlds where these alien life forces were embedded in the soil for who knows how long and something triggered it and they all came out and all hell broke loose mm -hmm. that's what's been happening and now even uh liberals, uh, atheists, especially in the hard sciences, are going, what in the world just happened? And they're all being taken over now by critical theorists and their ideologies, even in the hard sciences. And that's what you're starting to see in culture. Uh, it's spreading into campus ministries. And that's the, uh, the cancel culture then phenomena that we're seeing, right? Absolutely. Because remember, Voltaire would say, um, I may disagree with what you say, but I would defend to the death your right to say it. Stalin would say, 
ideas are more powerful than weapons. We don't allow our enemies to have weapons. Why should we let them have ideas? Mm -hmm. That's what we're seeing. That's what cancel culture is all about. So before, and this is good, that's a great segue into our final section here on these sort of new kinds of alliances uh, that you've uh, been sort of spearheading mm -hmm. uh, with your work together with uh, atheist philosopher Peter Boghossian. Uh, before we uh, launch into that, this final phase, though, uh, what we're calling the great realignment, which finding common ground with former enemies, I do want to ask this question. Where does authority come into play for the cultural Marxist? Is there a, a, an understanding of authority or is, is authority literally just me and my experience? <laughs> That is an excellent question. This is a question that I hear a lot of people popping up, and uh, I hear it popping up among a lot of people. What's the end goal? You know, once once the uh, Marxists take over, um, you know, the workers of the world unite, take over the bourgeoisie, the ruling class, then what? Everyone's going to have equality? No, Kim Jong Il didn't live in a tent like all of his people. Fidel Castro didn't live in the same tent. Uh, the, the, you know, Soviet rulers didn't live in the same tent as all their masses. They become the new Authority. bourgeoisie, right. the new ruling class. It never seems to work. And of course, that's what we're always told. And when I took a graduate course on Marxism at Purdue by a distinguished professor of Marxism, everyone always says, oh, it's just really never been tried. <laughs> it's just been abused, never really been tried. The idea is the ultimate telos, the ultimate goal is equality and it is achievable. That's the utopia. That's what, um, you know, from, from um, you know, Marx to, um, to Lenin <laughs> or from Lenin to Marxist to John Lennon, the Beatles, uh, imagine, imagine. Right. And you listen to the words of that song. Yes, it's right. He's an evangelist in that uh, for, yeah. for utopian community. And of course, as Christians, we'd say this good old-fashioned problem of original sin keeps messing up, messing yeah. up the works, doesn't it? Yeah. Once you get into the position of authority, once the oppressed take authority, they're not going to give it back. And of course, just in virtue of rejecting the authority of Almighty God to begin with, right? Which is the free, maybe the the fundamental that's <laughs> right. physical problem. Uh, with that's the right. And that's a fundamental part where Marx went wrong and all of his yeah. followers throughout the ages is that, which we can observe just by reading the newspapers or right. watching, you know, online, um, humans have an inclination towards selfishness, toward corruption, towards right. sin. And or, or just incompetency. <laughs> Yeah, and it's, it's, it's not just a Christian viewpoint. Yeah. Ayn Rand, the atheist, held it, and uh, Thomas Hobbes in the, in the modern world held right. that. Menke right. is one of uh, Confucius' greatest disciples. So you, you get it in naturalism, mm -hmm. you get it in theism, and you get it in pantheism. Uh, you have people making just observations that people are not basically good. They have a tendency to serve self. Right. You know, and one, I just want to, one book that I'll recommend for our audience, and I'll put a link to this, uh, is Alistair McIntyre, who, of course, you know, was once a Marxist before he became a uh, uh, devoted Roman Catholic uh, after writing uh, his book, After Virtue, in 81. But he wrote, while he was still sort of a Marxist theorist, at least, a really short book called Marxism and Christianity, mm -hmm. which I would highly recommend to all of our listeners to read, 
to show you how uh, also Marx was uh, not unaware of the content of Christianity and was providing, in, in one sense, the secular, the atheistic alternative uh, uh, to, to Christian, sort of a Christianity without Christ. Uh, but that's a great little read. All right, well, Corey, bring us home with some of the work you've been doing to combat uh, this grand problem of tearing down all of our traditional narratives um, with uh, people that, you know, Christians might consider sort of on the other side of the problem anyways, uh, sort of like uh, people like Peter Boghossian, who is an avowed atheist. I think he's even written a book then you write a book, something like how to, how to create atheists or something. Yeah, so, a manual for creating atheists. There you go. So, and an endorsement by Dawkins, Richard Dawkins. So how do we have alliances uh, with people uh, like Peter Boghossian and what kind of work can be done there? Yeah, he, he calls this uh, the great realignment. I just talked with him last night, incidentally. Yeah. <laughs> I asked him, given 100 days of uh, Antifa um, in Portland next to your university, are you going to vote for Trump? <laughs> uh, so we were joking back and forth about that. But yeah, he's, he was the polar opposite. He's my metaphysical foe, you might say. He's, mm -hmm. He has, you know, the street epistemology that he tries to train people in how to treat Christians like patients, medical patients, psychiatric patients, being nice to them and asking Socratic questions and trying to help them to see that faith is a virus, whereas I say it's the virtue. And well, Peter and I, once he went through some really hard times uh, because he went after social justice critical theory, well, along with two other atheist scholars, because they saw the nonsense of this stuff as scholarship, uh, they hit a hornet's nest and all of a sudden the uber left, the new left, the neo-Marxists <clears throat> started coming after the left, him, he's a leftist. They're new leftists, and they were going for his job, and he was getting, um, you know, threats, and you know, being called a rapist, and and all kinds of just nasty stuff. And his office happens to be now in the uh, building with the Portland State University Police Department. And when I walked him back there after he invited me to lecture at his in his atheism seminar class on arguments for God. I walked him back to his office and I said, why is your office in the police department? And he says, I don't know. They won't tell me. I think it's for my safety. <laughs> Goodness. Wow. But, you know, he said he is done uh, with the atheism theism debates for the time. He says he's dedicating everything toward going after social justice. Mm -hmm. He says it is a matter of civilization here. And he's calling this from his vantage point, the great realignment, uh, where he has more in common with people like me. Than than with the rest of the atheists. Uh, he said that him, Dawkins, Sam Harris, and others, he said, we have lost the war within atheism. Um, even on campuses, the non-theist societies, he said, they all hate me, they're all woke. They wouldn't help me at all. So Peter Boghossian and I formed kind of an alliance and we did a university tour through several universities and we're looking at doing it again uh, in this next year on viewpoint diversity. I'm talking on the death of the university, the death of intellectual university, how social justice and identity politics are killing the university. It is stifling free thinking uh, because it's very Stalinistic. And that's what happens, mm -hmm. uh, Tony. When you get a ratio of two to one, okay. When you get five to one, okay. Uh, 12 to one, now you're talking, you know, 90%. When you get 23 to one or even 70 to one, 
there is a political orthodoxy there. You dare not violate the blasphemy laws. And that's what you're seeing. Even people on the left who were the uh, you know, metaphysical foes of us 10 years ago um, are now being targeted by the uber left, the new left, this neo-Marxism. Um, and so they're looking for alliances for the sake of civilization. And I said to Peter, I said, you know, this is your problem, right? You guys- I was wondering about that because it does seem like they opened up a void there. I said, I said- was natural filled by yeah. the more existentially minded atheist, right? Yeah, yeah, he, you know, I, I, he calls phase one, um, Obergefeller, where the culture war 1.0 was finished. Um, and he says, this is 2.0. I say, no, phase one was 1880 to 1930, right. when naturalism assumed control of the universities. Phase two began right in 1930s, but over in Germany, mm. and then came over here. And over time, it, it was brewing, but something happened when the rise of the inequality of the number of left to right uh, professors was happening, it was just the perfect timing, perfect timing. Everything was ready to go. And now all of a sudden it spread and the naturalists, especially in the hard sciences, cannot control this Frankenstein that has emerged. So I well, said, this was your fault, but I'll help yeah. you with it. <laughs> well, I, I, you're right, because it's interesting. It's sort of, a, it's very ironic. I mean, the irony is sort of deep here because I've always felt like the, the sort of the, the Bertrand Russell strain of atheism that, you know, uh, you know, the very, you know, logic-centered uh, nat natural sciences can get us to, you know, but they, there was always a, you know, the, the, a negative critique of religious belief. But once the critique was done, there was never anything else on offer to sort of fill the void of, of uh, you know, of religion or religious belief or Christianity even more specifically. So, you know, they, people just, packed up their analytical tools and went home. Right. But then, you know, Marx, and if you read again this book by McIntyre, Marx is, uh, like you said, the, the economic theory is sort of down the line of what he was trying to do. He's trying to answer existential questions uh, about yeah. human, the human condition that I think the sort of more scientific atheist just didn't really try and answer. You know, so that, uh, you know, the Marxist then comes in and says, well, if, we, if religion is false or Christianity is false, we'll offer you sort of a new alternative to that. Here it is, you know? So um, anyways, that's, that's how I've tended to, to see what we're up against. And, you know, and there's yeah. something there theologically where when we talk about social justice. It's a theological, con right? It is a theological concept. And uh, I was reading some articles by Andrew Sullivan, who is by no means a, a staunch conservative, yeah, but no. who was one of the first ones to really start calling sort of the critical race theory and social justice phenomena a new religion of sorts, because right. it does yeah, seem to be That's right. answering, trying to answer religious questions that mm -hmm. people have and existential uh, concerns of just the, of the human condition, right? Um, that sort of, again, the classical atheist uh, modernist wasn't really interested in answering or maybe even, you know, bothering to touch on it all.
Yeah, and so when you come back to you know this notion classical liberalism, which is right. where Peter would you know call himself, he would say fits into that that mold. These people believe in the correspondence theory of truth, that truth is that which corresponds with reality. Now, they only want scientific truth. They only want truth knowable by the five senses, right? They're, they're modernists. Uh, they're enlightenment uh, thinkers in that way. Mm -hmm. But right. at least they believe that truth is real and knowable and objective. Discoverable, even right. If, even if only through science. Yeah. And they at least have the demeanor where you can have a debate with them, mm -hmm. uh, with these postmodernists who, on the one hand, say that knowledge is but a social construction of reality, right, uh, according to critical theory. Um, and then they try to find room for objectivity in their universal knowledge claims from an oppressed angle, from what's called standpoint epistemology. Uh, they don't believe in having conversations. They... They say that, uh, you know, debate is a form of hate. Um, when Peter and I were uh, getting ready to come to one of the universities in Utah, we had one um, new leftist group oppose us, write a letter to the president, and call us logical fascists uh, because we were bringing Western colonialist uh, oppressive tools to the game that have been used to oppress those who we are oppressing for centuries now. So As if Asian and African diversity. thinkers had, had never used logic before. Or, or, right, and then you know, it doesn't even seem ethnographically accurate, right, to say that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the Smithsonian Institute, what did they do? Yeah, published right. lasted two days, yeah. some article, Robin DiAngelo, I think, had a hand in it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I saw that. That showed that uh, these things are Western, logical thinking, like hard reality. <laughs> you know, like yeah. scientific method and things like that, right? Yeah. So these, I mean, oh, they just ticked off a whole lot of African Americans with that. Right. Right. That was very, <laughs> was well, more than just poor form. But I'll leave it at that. So, um, okay, Corey. I mean, this has been great. I mean, we've gone through just to recap these sort of three phases uh, that we wanted to touch on: uh, the development of the kind of intellectual uh, history that has that led to missional drift, uh, especially in the big Protestant universities, um, how they became first dominated by uh, naturalism uh, with sort of the natural sciences as, as its operational arm. But then this quick emergence of sort of uh, cultural, the cultural Marxism that came over from Germany uh, through the Frankfurt School and then sort of uh, filtered through the social sciences and the humanities and that has just been sort of launched upon us now um, and that we're dealing with the that in real time uh, in the culture and then um, some uh, possible road forward with uh, some co-belligerence if you will with uh, atheists even who still hold that truth is knowable, that we can access it, that we, we can use reason and logic to at least get to some standard by which we maybe can bring our, our lines, our lives, you know, underneath that standard, even if it's just a standard of natural facts, where of course, we're going to go further and say that there are metaphysical facts that we need to align ourselves with. And how that is very different from uh, the critical theorist who says that these are all just constructs 
Uh, so if my construct is, if I can get my construct to sort of win the day, which again sounds very Nietzschean, then too bad for you. Uh, so mm -hmm. um, one thing that I'd, I'd like to finish with, if we have a, a few more minutes, is where does the, how does this affect our churches? Yeah. And if you have some time, where have we seen this right now in some of our more conservative Christian uh, universities and seminaries? And what can we do about it? Yes, uh, very concerning. A lot of people, I don't care about this, too philosophical, too political. I don't care. Well, you will be made to care. It's coming for you. Um, you know, after Nazi Germany happened, you ended up having a uh, pastor, what was it, uh, Neil Muller, who said first they came Neil for Muller. the yeah. trade unionist. I was not a trade unionist, so I didn't speak up. Then they came for the um, socialist. I wasn't a socialist, so I didn't speak up. Then they came for the Jew. I wasn't a Jew, so I didn't speak up. Last of all, they came for me and no one else was left. Mm -hmm. Well, they're coming. And I think to understand how this is invaded the Christian church and seminaries and academic societies and so forth, um, you have to recognize why it's been, been so attractive. Remember, phase one happened by something a bit more dry. It was scientific naturalism that uh, worked through liberal Protestantism, and they wanted to hang on to morality. That's all they could hang on to, but no grounding to metaphysical framework was gone. The epistemological confidence for it was gone, but they wanted to hang on to the morality, borrowing capital of a bygone worldview. Um, they wanted to hang on to it, and so it issued in the social gospel. Phase two is beginning with naturalism, but Marxist critical theory has issued in social justice, not the social gospel, which is not very different but it is in terms of the radical and ravenous nature of the Stalinist rioters and anarchists and uh, silencers and so forth that are trying to take over. They're forcing this thing now. Well, how did this capture so many people? Abraham Lincoln said this. He said, in this age, in this country, public sentiment is everything. With it, nothing can fail. Against it, nothing can succeed. Whoever molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statutes or pronounces judicial decisions. The emotions, the passions. Rhetoric is about logos, ethos, and pathos. Persuasion, rhetoric. Logos, we often think of logic. Ethos, ethics, credibility, so forth. Pathos, the passions. Mm -hmm. Part of persuasion. The emotions. The Christians are given over to this stuff like prey, like fish in a barrel, for a couple reasons. We are living, number one, in the most anti-intellectual period of the church age, R.C. Sproul once said, and it's true. I think it was, um, who wrote the book? The uh, oh, uh, Scandal of the American Mind, Mark The Scandal Null. of the Evangelical Mind, Mark Knoll, right? Yes, the yeah. Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, which was to say there isn't an evangelical mind anymore sad. Um, we are anti-intellectual. Remember, the all up to 1840 of the presidents of the universities were members of the clergy. Mm -hmm. Our pastors, largely, for so many of them, not all, 
don't value loving God with our mind. We love with our hands, soup kitchens, and with our hearts, connecting with passion, worship conferences. But our heads, what's that? We kicked out that member of the Trinity. And it allowed in that vacuum something else to enter in. And now our people are ill-prepared. We train them up in the way they should go. And when they get older, they get assimilated into the system at the universities. 70% falling away. That's how I ended up in doing what I'm doing today. The second way this came about, not just the secularists who have figured out a brilliant way to get Christian parents to pay for the apostasy of their own children, the universities, but how social justice captured the minds and hearts, really, yeah. of the Christian community, because it captured the passions. It uses not dry stuff like methodological naturalism, scientific naturalism. It uses the language of ethics. It's about compassion. It's about justice. Mm -hmm. It's redefining. It's capturing the Christian ethical terms and saying, what would Jesus do? Hate right. or celebrate? What would Jesus do? Well, he wouldn't hate. That's right. He would celebrate. And now it's gone beyond celebrate diversity. It's you're either racist or anti-racist. Which one do you want to be? Well, not a racist. That's right. You want to be anti-racist. Yes. Well, what does that mean? That doesn't mean just not racist. It means, according to Ibram X. Kendi, you can't be anti-racist without being anti-capitalist. You can't be anti-capitalist without being anti-racist. You can't be anti-racist without being uh, anti-homophobic and transphobic in every category, race, sex, gender, and so forth. It's about throwing out the entire system. We are experiencing revolution here. And the churches have bought this because we assume a doctrine of original sin, and that, that we are all sinners. And so we are very easily um, convinced when someone says you're a sinner, well, yeah, you're guilty. Well, yeah, you're unjust. Well, yeah, you're an oppressor. Well, yeah, you're white, male, Christian, heteronormative oppressor, and all these other people are down and out, and they're dying and committing suicide, and you're the cause of it. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Yeah, no longer is it skinny jeans and fog machines in the churches. It's now social justice, and everybody wants to be part of that game. It's a Trojan horse. Most of what's in it is social injustice, but they don't realize that, and we're, we're, we're up a creek here. We've got some serious work to do. I think uh, pastors need to be teaching parents and youth not just how to survive, in the um, universities, but to thrive, and now it's K through 12. Um, campus ministries need to reach not only students, but faculty and administrators. Uh, professors are the 1040 window of the Western world, the most unreached and influential people group. It's the greatest omission of the Great Commission. And professors and senior administrators who are Christians should focus on hiring before retiring. We need to think strategically, like the neo-Marxists have done so well. Right. They were very right. patient, very methodical. They took our universities mm -hmm. and used them against us. Right. And I only see a handful. I think I just saw SES, and I think you were cited. You were quoted in their statement, SES, Southern Evangelicals, that came out with yes. the first statement I've seen that has really been a serious pushback against this agenda that is taking over our schools and, and our churches. 
Right. Yeah. Right. So Corey, I mean, uh, we could do a whole nother podcast on, you know, you brought up a lot of things there at the end, just how language is manipulated. Uh, you know, the guilt shame tactics that are used uh, to try and draw us into this and say, Oh my, my, I have to do this. I'm a Christian. It's just, I need to, right. Mm -hmm. There's so much of this going on. So I think, you know, we'll probably have to have you on again, maybe to go into depth on some of those things, but I do want to just uh, emphasize and, you know, that uh, we have to train the life of the mind, you know, and I know that's what Ratio Christi is focused on. And that's the, one of the reasons why we've launched this podcast, right? Again, another uh, motto is that we are, we're, we're building on the past for the sake of the future. We're not tearing down the past. We're building on the past for the sake of the future. And if we don't understand the history of ideas and the history of the church, and how the church has fended off attacks like this in the past. We don't have any kind of legacy of our own to draw from, which is another thing that's so disconcerted me about the contemporary evangelical church is no understanding of our church past at all. The great thinkers uh, from, you know, the early church fathers all the way through, you know, to, to the Princetonians, right? Uh, and uh, we're just, it's lost to us, our own, our own sort of historical legacy. And we need to draw from that if we're going to yeah. fight, uh, fight off the barbarians here at the gate. Yes. Um, but I'm going to end with that. I want to thank you again uh, for being the first of our hopefully many guests on the Equal Justice Podcast. We'll hope to see you again soon. And we uh, hope to uh, have uh, a lot of uh, fruitful alliances in the, in the future. And, and we'll be praying for your continued work with guys like Peter Bogosian and that we hope uh, that you guys can uh, have some real impact uh, together on our, our university campuses. So, thank you, Tony. It's, thanks, it's, Corey. Appreciate what you're doing. All right. Bye -bye. God bless, brother. Bye.